Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of On the River of History. I'm your host, Joan Turmel, historian-in-residence. Although this podcast focuses primarily on the events of human history, I recognize the valuable importance in discussing the ages before Homo sapiens. After all, human beings were born into a world that had been orbiting around the sun for some 4.5 billion years. People should have a context for their existence. Because in the grand scheme of natural history, our time on this planet has been comparatively short, and all the events of our written history, from the Mesopotamian city-states to the year 2019, amount to nothing more than a quarter fraction of that time. Scientists and historians have given all sorts of similes to help lay people grasp how long the history of the Earth really is, from clocks and calendars to city streets and football fields. This deep time is inherently too vast for humans to comprehend alone. Remember from the previous episode that once people begin their attempts to recall events over a period of years, gaps begin to appear in their memory. Now imagine the task of trying to make sense of events that occurred over not just thousands of years, but millions of years. Billions of years! Much has happened over the past 4.5 billion years, and for reasons of time I'll have to condense these immense periods into a few episodes giving just enough information to help listeners get a clear understanding of how our world was established, and realize the number of remarkable circumstances that took place that allowed for the evolution and flourishing of living organisms as ourselves. The history of the world begins with the origin of our solar system. Already our universe was over 9 billion years old, formed from a rapidly expanding process that established all matter and energy that will ever be. Our position in the cosmos is located within the Orion Arm of the Milky Way, a barred spiral galaxy that contains roughly 400 billion stars. Among all these stars is the Sun, a relatively average sphere of plasma that forms the main gravitational pull that keeps all the worlds of our solar system together. Cosmologists, those who study the evolution of our universe, have grappled with the mystery of how our solar system came to be since the mid-18th century but we now have a much clearer understanding than ever before. There are a series of standard observations that have been made that give us strong clues to what occurred. For starters, we know that most of the worlds in our solar system, including all the planets and their moons, make elliptical orbits around the sun all along the same plane, which is called the elliptic. When an orbit is elliptical, that means its movement is more like an oval than a perfect circle. We also know that the worlds move in the same counterclockwise direction around the sun, that is, when seen from the Earth's North Pole. The planets, as well as the Sun, rotate as well, along their axial tilt. Imagine an invisible line going straight through the center of a planet that extends through both the North and South Poles. Now imagine that the line is tipped at an angle, and that the planet is spinning like a crooked top. That is basically what an axial tilt is, and all the planets have their own unique degree of tilt. Earth, for example, is inclined about 23 degrees on its axis while Jupiter is nearly 
3 degrees on its axis. Noting this, the direction of rotation for these planets is roughly the same too, counterclockwise, with some exceptions. The moons of the planets, should they be present, also orbit around their hosts in the same direction, and sometimes even rotate in the same direction too. The worlds and their sun also have a lot in common as far as their composition goes. Though a star like the sun, a rocky watery world like the earth, and a gas giant planet like Saturn look different and technically act in different ways, they are all made of the same chemical elements. The main distinctions lie in the distribution of these chemical elements. The sun is mostly composed of the elements hydrogen and helium, with smaller amounts of oxygen, carbon, iron, nitrogen, silicon, and others. The rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are primarily silicon, iron, oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon, with small amounts of hydrogen and helium. The gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are mostly hydrogen and helium, like the Sun, with very sparse amounts of other elements like carbon and oxygen. In fact, so vast is the presence of hydrogen and helium on planets like Jupiter that had the conditions been different, they could have developed into stars in their own right. There are also other worlds within our solar system, the vast expanse of asteroids that lie between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, the vibrant comets with their tails like fire, and the plutoids and sednoids, those strange icy worlds that lie beyond Neptune, which are not quite planets, but have just as many fascinating features. These share the same chemical composition as the planets and the sun, but they often orbit and rotate in different ways. Then there's the fact that, as an average star, the sun would have been born from a large cloud of gas and dust called a nebula. Nebulae contain heavy amounts of hydrogen and helium, the same elements that make up the majority of a star's composition. Astronomers have observed stars from across the cosmos at every stage of their formation, so they have a good understanding of how they form. It became clear that the process is not a rapid one. It often takes thousands upon thousands of years, otherwise we would have seen more stars being born with ease. Astronomers have also discovered evidence of what they call protoplanetary disks within some well-known nebulae. These disks of dust and gas have very young stars at their centers, and it was very recently, July of last year, that researchers at the Max Planck Institute discovered one with a newborn planet orbiting around it, still shrouded within a blanket of dust and gas. We have known since the 1990s that there are thousands of planets beyond our solar system, so it is highly likely that most stars actually have worlds of their own. The formation of stars and planets is fairly well documented. Taking all these observations to heart, cosmologists have deduced that all the objects of the solar system stem from a common origin, like a protoplanetary disk. This, the most widely accepted model for the origin of the solar system, is known as the nebular model. I say most widely accepted because it is the one that has withstood the most rigorous testing as opposed to other proposed models. There are a share of issues, but for lack of a better model, this is the best one we have. Because cosmologists do not have entire solar systems to play with and experiment on, most astronomical tests are conducted on computers, where highly accurate models of the positions and movements of the planets and the sun are recorded. They can make their own protoplanetary disks and simulate the scenarios required to produce a solar system just like our own. Thanks to decades of research, this is what cosmologists have developed as an educated model for the birth of the solar system. Dating of the oldest known material of our solar system, rocky meteorites called chondrites that have fallen to Earth, give us the estimate that the time of birth for the Sun and the worlds within its gravitational grasp was about 4.56 billion years ago. 
A large nebula had been orbiting around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and some material within its center began to accrete, or combine together, as its gravity began to weigh it down. As to what may have triggered this accretion, cosmologists have proposed that it was a supernova, a massive explosion that ends the star's life and sends chemical elements spewing in all directions. Yong Chong Chen, an astrophysicist from the University of Minnesota, has argued that it was a low-mass supernova, where the catalyst star is small. These types of supernovae tend to release particular forms of elements like beryllium-10, calcium-41, and palladium-107. These elements are abundant in meteorites, but their presence there had been previously difficult to explain prior to this proposal. It's a fascinating hypothesis. The matter at the center of the cloud began to grow denser, and the energy used in the collapsing process began to heat up the glowing ball of mass. As the temperature rose higher and higher, the hydrogen and helium trapped within the center of the mass started to collide and fuse with each other, creating more hydrogen and helium. This is known as nuclear fusion, and it's something that all stars do best. At some point in this process, the reactions were so great that the spherical mass of superheated gas and dust essentially blasted away all the excess energy and matter around it. The mass expanded and eventually was able to hold its own weight, and with the temperature set so high, the ball began to glow with intensity. Thus, the sun was born. Much of the matter that was shot outward from the young sun became contained within the star's gravitational pull, and it formed a protoplanetary disk. At first, the material of this disk was scattered in a random distribution. There were specks of rocky dust and particles of ice and gas, and they all rotated around the newborn sun in the same direction. At various points throughout the disk, all of these particles began to accrete together as well. This process of accretion works very simply. Small particles were attracted to equally small particles, and as some particles grew in size, they collected more and more smaller particles. Because of their distribution, there was nothing to stop these accretions of dust, gas, and ice from colliding with each other frequently. Over thousands of years, the size of these planetesimals spanned many miles. We have remains from this period of bombardment. Achondrites are another type of meteorite that has fallen to Earth. They're not very common compared to other fallen rocks, but their composition and age reveal they are leftovers of these planetesimals that have survived accretion. Which planets would develop from which planetesimals depended on their position from the sun? As the newborn star continuously sent out its solar wind, most of the planetesimals further than 297 million miles from the sun retained much of their hydrogen and helium because this region was very cool. These gases condensed around the little planetesimals of ice and methane and would eventually form the gas giants. Planetesimals within 297 million miles of the sun were blessed with a warmer environment. Most of the hydrogen and helium was lost there, so accretion was conducted with mineral-laden dusty particles. These became the rocky planets, and one of these, almost 93 million miles from the sun, was the young Earth. For those curious, the space in which the asteroid belt is found could very well have been home to another planet, but the gravitational energy of Jupiter was so strong that it prevented any from forming there. Nearly all of the early asteroids were lost since the solar system's inception, so even now, if you were to combine all the asteroids together, you'd only get a sphere less than 5% of the moon's size. Within a period of a few hundred thousand years, the sun had been ignited, and the eight planets were forming and growing to their current sizes. Earth's beginnings would have been very much like those of the other rocky planets, where rapid bombardment of planetesimals continued to pelt its surface, and this prevented it from cooling and solidifying. 
For many thousands of years, the earth was a molten place, kept hot by the impacts of rocky bodies and the presence of radioactive elements within the growing planet. It would have been a formidable place, but this lava-covered world was the key catalyst for the settlement of the various layers of the earth. Our earth is composed of a series of distinct layers, each one made of particular materials. There's the thin rocky crust of mostly silicon, the vast semi-solid mantle, mostly silicon and magnesium, the liquid iron and nickel outer core, and the solid iron and nickel inner core. Humans have never actually traveled to the mantle or the cores. Earth's crust alone is some 20 to 30 miles thick, and the deepest people have dug is only 7.5 miles. So how do we even know that our Earth has layers in the first place? Again, geologists have made years of observations and experiments, and have a very good understanding of our planet's interior. When earthquakes occur, they produce seismic waves that can be detected on machines called seismometers. The waves radiate outward from the quake, with shock waves emerging above the surface of the Earth, and body waves moving down into the Earth. The speed of movement through the Earth for the waves depends on how strong the earthquake is. But in any case, two major types of body waves are produced. P waves are usually the first type detected. They travel fast and can move through solids and liquids. S waves are slower and can only move through solids. When geologists continually study the movements of the waves, they notice an interesting pattern when they analyze their depth and speed. When they reached a depth of about 1,800 miles, the P waves reduced in speed, and the S waves ceased. Eventually, the P waves would pick up again slightly. Seeing this trend, geologists learned that there were parts of the Earth's interior that were mostly solid or mostly liquid, and that when they timed the movement of the P and S waves, they could figure out the size of the different layers. As for what we know of the specific composition of the Earth's layers, that comes from our understanding of the chemistry of the planets. We know that the very existence of a crust means that it would have to have a density that is lighter than that of the planet as a whole. So, in principle, that means that what lies below it must have a heavier density. Since we recognize the presence of the layers themselves, we can then argue that the further you go down, the denser the materials are. For example, one element that is found in abundance throughout the solar system and the cosmos as a whole is iron. This metal is very common in meteorites, and studies of interstellar bodies have suggested that iron is actually among the most common elements anywhere in our universe. Working from this fact, historical geologists have been able to piece together not only the anatomy of the Earth's layers, but also how they could have possibly formed. During the Earth's molten stage, all the elements present within it were scattered in a random mixture, similar to how the particles within the protoplanetary disk were scattered once. Some of the elements within this mixture included iron and nickel, which are dense materials, and oxygen and silicon, which are lighter in density. As per the laws of physics, the heavier elements soon began to sink deep in the Earth, while the lighter elements rose upwards. Easy to do when the planet has a liquid-like molten composition. Thus, our inner and outer cores are mostly composed of nickel and iron, while the mantle and then the crust are made of increasingly lighter elements like silicon and magnesium. Of importance to note is that with the formation of iron and nickel cores, our Earth could have a magnetic field. This shield of electric currents is generated by the movement of iron within the cores, and as it shoots out from the poles and engulfs the planet, it helps keep deadly solar winds from striking the surface. The presence of this magnetic field is what drove researchers to recognize that our core was composed partly of iron. Needless to say, our Earth could not have supported life had this vital piece of armor never developed. To continue this episode, please go to part two.